Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And with us today in the studio is CX Analyst Director Michelle Yezer and VP and Research Director Harley Manning to discuss the results of Forrester's U.S. CX Index in 2019. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start at the top. What do the scores tell us? Well, the scores tell us that there wasn't a lot of progress in customer experience this year overall, but there was some. Uh, We had slightly more good scores uh, than last year. Uh, We did have a very small decline in the number of very poor scores. So uh, the convergence towards the middle, although in certain sense it it continued. Uh, in another sense, there there was actually a little little uh, hopeful hopeful light there at the end of the tunnel. And just for the audience that's not intimate with this product, can you just go through a little bit what the scoring is from very poor to excellent? So the CX index score is on a scale of 0 to 100. Um, and those scores are broken then into five categories. Very poor, poor, okay, good, and excellent. Uh, excellent starts at 85 and up, and then there are 10 10-point increment, so good is 75 to 84, okay is 65 to, to 74, and, and on down through poor and very poor. And in today's market, is good good? Well, in today's market in the U.S., since we once again this year don't have any brands scoring in the excellent category, so nobody topped 85 points or higher, um, to some extent, good is great. <laughs> there is a bit of a ceiling there. Um, but I also don't want to discourage, you know, it's not impossible for a brand to score excellent. We do, we have seen excellent scores in the past. Uh, certainly when we do some more uh, custom work, looking very closely at very specific experiences that aren't necessarily benchmarkable at a, a national level, we do see individual brands that are delivering, you know, 85, even 90 point uh, scores overall using the exact same algorithm and methodology. And is it, as we look at the way the methodology works and the way the market is right now, is excellent doable? Is it a fair expectation? Is good a really good or great expectation, using your word? Yeah, well, excellent is definitely doable because it has been done. It was that last done in 2015. And what's been happening since then is people have been making more incremental improvements than big leaps forward. People, sorry, brands have been doing that. Um, the people, the actual consumers, what's been happening at the same time is their expectations have been rising. So we see a decline in the number of people who say that their expectations had been exceeded. So uh, someone does something really interesting, a brand does something really interesting, uh, next day delivery, and suddenly the expectation becomes what? You don't have next day delivery? <laughs> well, you know, I, of course you should have ex- next day delivery, right? And so the brands have to keep trying to move forward faster than everybody else because what everybody else does then becomes the new normal. So scores plateauing is not a lack of movement. They're still playing some catch up or some staying apace with expectations at the good level. It's not as if they're falling behind. And I I would say when Harley talks about kind of what everybody else is doing, everybody else is literally every other company. Mm -hmm. One of the trends we've also seen, especially over the past five years, customers no longer make a distinction for their expectations by industry. So I have the same expectations for how my bank treats me as I do my grocery store, as I do my mechanic at my dealership. So it's no longer the, well, it's not fair because they can do one day delivery and we can't. 
customers no longer care. So those expectations are rising across the board, not with just within each specific industry. So we had a podcast with Jay Patasal that talked about the underinvestment or looking away from the creative stuff. And one of the hypotheses in that work was that as people digitize their business, there became to be the sameness in the experience because they're running relatively the same playbooks, looking at the same workflow, looking at the same UX guidance, whatever it might be. And so where one would hope experiences are as distinctive as the brand wishes to be, they became to be alike. Are we seeing that in the data? Are we seeing that in our own observations that experiences are too far alike among different brands? Well, one thing that we saw that was... um very surprising is that simply having uh, websites and and mobile apps and basically digital touch points has become a total hygiene factor, a must be. It's like, it's no longer the case that having the best mobile app is going to win customer loyalty. Everybody just expects you to have a mobile app and for it to be up all the time and for it to be good. So is it possible to differentiate your experiences there or is it just that hygiene has made it so that there's just sameness in that area? What you have to differentiate on is by starting with understanding what it is that customers actually want and need and what drives loyalty. And so just like across all the industries, we keep seeing that digital touch points are simple hygiene factors. Across all the industries, we see that customer service is in fact something that can drive customer loyalty. And there are some very specific aspects of it. So if you start with, I want to provide excellent customer service, and possibly I will do that through a digital touch point, if that's what the customer wants and needs at that moment, then you can get to that driving up the loyalty. But if you start with the outcome and say, hey, we need a chatbot, well, then you're just playing technology jeopardy where someone gave you the answer and you're looking for the question. Yeah. Well, I think something else coming out of Jay's episode is this like overinvestment in technology and all of the things that I think people were hoping to get out of those investments. And it feels like maybe sort of that's one of the things that we can draw from the CX index results, or at least the drivers, knowing that maybe it's not just the like whiz bang things or the table stakes items like Mm -hmm. a mobile app, but how it connects with a human interaction or things that are a little bit more complex in nature, not just a tech investment. Is that fair? My personal opinion is uh, someone who uses the CX index data a lot. Uh, the drivers are the best part mm-hmm. because the drivers tell you where to invest. They say, this, this is where, if you focus here, this is where you will drive customer loyalty and keep your customers longer and get more of their wallet share. The overall score is really interesting, uh, but it's not as actionable as understanding that the main thing you want to do as a business, for example, is to make sure that when a customer calls in with a problem, you answer all of their questions. That turns out to be a super important thing. Don't answer just part of their questions. Don't address just part of their problem. Solve all of their problem. That will drive loyalty. And so then that might lead you to take your tech investments and invest them somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a, an AI product from a company called Cogito that listens into calls and coaches call center agents to be more empathetic, to pause, uh, to um, slow down their talking, to do all those kinds of things. And and it's a piece of software that has more emotional intelligence than the human, Mm -hmm. uh, the human service rep that is. So that might be a better place for you to put your money than saying, you know, I want to try and get that incremental 
bit of betterness in my mobile app. Well, I think a really good concrete example of that in talking about the drivers, um, working with a client directly with actually 2018 data, this is the end of last year, one of the things we found is that they had a lower score around the drivers about keeps my personal information protected in your technology systems. They had a significantly lower score than one of their biggest competitors. And I'm presenting this to a room full of execs and they kind of exploded. They were really upset. They've had no data breaches. They have top-notch security. They said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody said you've had a problem. The customer's perception is that you're not as good as this other company. And we simply pulled up their websites side by side and read the privacy statement. Mm. First of all, the one that had a higher score was right front and center, written in very plain English. Theirs that had the lower score was three or four clicks deep. It was not always easy to find depending on where you entered the site. And it was written in very technical jargon that customers just didn't really understand that says, hey, we, we've got you covered. Mm-hmm. So it's also what's being served up. What's the quality of experience and communication, especially when you go back to the investment in creative? What else are they doing besides the whiz-bang technology? So Michelle, you and I had a discussion before this podcast that looked at the top drivers across industries for 2019. And as you know, I can be a bit of a dog on the bone. And so I'm like, well, where's the loyalty thing? And in it, only (laughs) one industry as a driver had their loyalty program even front and center. And yet, a little bit to your point on investments, oh, so many different industries attempt to do something there. Could you comment on that a little bit? So in our CXNX data, we're seeing the idea of rewards my loyalty. So some type of loyalty, frequent buyer, you know, long-term customer, whatever it works for your industry, almost starting to say, I, I would kind of hypothesize that it's really becoming the hygiene factor, similar to an investment in digital. Um, if I go to a retailer, I expect some type of loyalty program. Um, that's no longer a differentiator. Mm-hmm. It may make my decision to not shop at you the first time, but unless it's very valuable and somehow different from your competitor, it's not necessarily going to increase my loyalty either. So it has become a hygiene factor. And in a number of industries, we start to see that trend. And I think, Victor, you and I were specifically talking about the airline industry mm-hmm. where it's not one of the top drivers. And again, that fact is look at what most airlines here in the United States have done to their loyalty programs. They've really reduced them. So many of them, it costs many, many more miles to get a free ticket. Um, you have you know, a lot more qualifications when a lot of them started adding dollar spend also. So it's not just that you have to fly 50,000 miles within a calendar year. You also have to spend $10,000. And by the way, of your $500 ticket, only 200 of those dollars actually count towards that because taxes and fees and all the other things don't. So the value that customers are receiving from actual loyalty programs are dwindling. So it's, it's less of a loyalty driving factor. What we do see when we've done some qualitative work around, quote, rewards my loyalty, we see things that are almost old school customer service, recognizes me when I come in the store, um, acknowledges my past purchases. Um, Those types of factors that are, as we've, you know, kind of paraphrased from some of our research, they treat me as a human and not as a dollar sign. Just seems interesting that loyalty is isn't one way a company playing offense. I can spur a deeper affinity. I can compel a deeper relationship, which by default has transactions sitting behind it. 
if the number one driver is I call because I have all these problems with you and you solve them all, that's playing defense. It began with I have a problem. Sort of a weird dynamic in the index in terms of what does it say about where we are in a market right now? Well, it says that there are moments of truth. It says that not every interaction that you have with your customer is equally important. And so that that customer who calls your your call center, they didn't want to be calling your call center. They didn't want to have a problem in the first place. It's true. So when they call you and they're perhaps emotionally distressed and they are just looking to make that problem they didn't want in the first place to just go away, if you make it go away, then they feel good. They feel like, oh, wow, you cared about me. You took care of me. Everything was resolved. And, and they want it, you know, as I said, they want the whole problem resolved and they want it quickly. That's another one that, that emerges, another driver. You know, it's like, did they resolve my problem quickly? Um, there's another one, you know, did, that the uh, first person I talked to resolved my problem, that they didn't escalate. And so these things are, they make intuitive sense, but when you look at the numbers behind them and you realize, wow, this is really important in terms of whether I lose this person or not. It's because that was a moment in time when the customer's loyalty was at play. So one of the reasons for CX being in place is it would, it's in theory the best representation of the brand. It's, it's a moment where the brand is best reflected in the experience itself. But calling for a problem is not really brands stand for. So where do you see in the data someone's brand coming to life in the way that they score, the way the drivers play out? Well, respects me as a customer is a driver that pops up a lot. And so uh, you, you have companies that are very uh, customer centric in their strategy from the top down, you know, with the, the, the brands that end up at the top of the index year after year, Navy Federal Credit Union, USAA, you know, they exist for the benefit of their members. They do well in terms of respects me as a, as a customer. And one of the things we also see when we talk to a lot of our clients, you know, I'm frequently and, and, you know, my whole team and the CX Index team, we're frequently working across organizations internally. So depending on the org structure, whether the customer experience team resides with marketing or under marketing or next to marketing. So we're often talking to CX people. We're talking to uh, uh, marketing people. We're talking to brand people. And one of the ways we kind of talk about that overlap between CX and brand is that you can think of brand as the promise that a company is making and the customer experience is whether or not the, the brand, the company is delivering on that promise and how well they deliver on that promise. So they're part and parcel. And there are certain things that in order to improve CX, you really need to work with the brand team. You really need to make sure that there's some reputational issues. Because when you think about customers remembering their interaction, we don't remember things in a vacuum. So if I had a good or bad experience and about that same time, I see a really negative news story about that brand, my overall memory of that okay or good experience may actually be decreased because I heard this thing in the news about a brand. We also see that, you know, when you see scandals and things, we can track some of the dips um, in driver scores and the overall CX index scores, certainly in the emotion scores that we collect. So they're really... Um, almost I think of kind of the yin and the yang of brand and CX together with that overall relationship with the customer. If you're doing brand strategy and you say, well, let's, let's define our brand promise. It's not going to be centered on customer support. It's going to be centered on evoking some emotional attachment. Are brands achieving that? Well, so it's, it's interesting because it, if you think about it at the overall company strategy level from which hopefully your brand promise flows – 
Um, take a look at direct brokerages, for example. So, so many of them seem to be wanting to compete on price. And price, prices and fees, uh, are the, is the least impactful driver category for direct brokerages in the CX index. It's number six out of six. So if your strategy is, I'm going to win based on being 50 cents less or a dollar less on trades, you probably are not going to win, except with the small frequent traders who you probably don't want anyway. Most brands don't. So you would say strategically, what, what is most important? Well, that category respects me as a customer that I mentioned. Uh, that's number two. That's That's right behind customer service. And so doing things that would demonstrate, communicate clearly to your customers that, in fact, you do value them. Doing the homework to figure out what it is that it means for them to feel valued and then focusing your brand strategy on that, that's going to get you a lot more mileage than saying, yeah, let's just go to war on price. In your two examples you gave earlier, Harley, you mentioned Navy Federal Credit Union, USA. Both are member-oriented organizations, as you described, which is – they began and exist in part within the lifestyle or in the lives of their members. Most companies don't. Is there anything in, the, in that that teaches us that companies need to get closer to who sort of the beating heart of their customers? Is there, is there something teachable about what, why member organizations seem to do well? Yeah. So they, it's interesting. There, there are a couple of things that are going on with those. And I, uh, I always look at USAA and think, wow, you know, people, people, some, people fall into the trap of thinking that USAA only serves the U.S. military, whereas USAA has um, like 12 million customers, I think, and their active duty military is about one and a half million, something like that. So, it, and they don't, and by the way, USAA does not have 100% of the U.S. active duty military market. So at least 90% of their customers, probably more like 95% of their customers, are not currently in the military. Yeah, I'm one of them. Yep. Yeah. So uh, what's going on there is by solving for the hard case of someone who maybe doesn't have a lot of money, maybe is deployed overseas, maybe doesn't have uh, the time to think about their finances, maybe is stressed out of their mind, and creating solutions for them, they create solutions that endear them to all these other people. And if they wanted to, they could open up the floodgates and they could expand a lot faster than they currently have been expanding, which has been pretty substantial. Um, so it's not just that they are targeted on that one very specific market. It's that they found a particular market with a hard-to-solve problem where when you solve that problem, it, you also solve problems for a much broader audience. But I guess if I go back to like Chick-fil-A, they, they will attract a certain demographic and they know that that's, that's instantiated in their brand and who they are and how they work. Same holds true for Navy Federal Credit Union. So is there something teachable about companies attempting to grow in this economy where people are so, so tuned to people's social I mean, social and political standing, whatever, that being a generic brand in a, gen, in, in a generic market is going to ultimately injure your CX performance because people are looking for a greater affinity at the, at the front end of that. Yeah. Well, we're not seeing generic brands at the top of any industry in the CX index. So that would indicate that, in fact, yes, uh, being a generic brand is a bad idea. I mean, you look at uh, luxury auto manufacturers, Lexus, and there's a great example of a very clear brand strategy. Man, their customer service is fantastic. You go to the dealership and get to get your car taken care of and you feel taken care of. 
And that was their strategy from the get-go. That's that's how they, they rolled out. Yeah, they actually have a whole initiative and they've had from the beginning, um, you can find it all over their website. They call it guest and home, that their goal, whether they're serving a prospective customer who's walking in the door to shop for a Lexus vehicle or somebody who already owns one and is coming in for service, you treat them as if they were a guest in your home. And hospitality, they, they actually don't use the term customer. They use the term guest for everybody who walks in the door at a dealership. And hospitality is one of the things that they talk about internally. And that has really shaped how they think about their relationship. And the, you know, the auto industry in general is kind of, to some extent, struggling to stay relevant, to put it a little blatantly, uh, that they're starting to really understand how they have to fit in a customer's life. So what else busy is going on um, that we can help with? You know, some Lexus dealerships now have spas where you can get, you know, men and women can get, you know, a mani-pedi while they're having their car serviced. Um, some are offering babysitting, you know, childcare services. You know, we see similar also in the luxury industry, but, you know, Lincoln having a concierge service that, they, that they've rolled out in certain markets to make that whole experience of how Lincoln fits in your life something you don't want to live without. We had several discussions last year about banks and the concern that banks will unintentionally evolve to be unintentional until it's a fall into the background of people's lives. And you just mentioned automotive, the fear that they're falling in the background of people's lives. Is there a basic question of relevance that plays out in the CX index results of 19? Like some industries are simply more relevant into life and some are becoming less relevant. Not necessarily. You know, the, the way our scoring works is that we have a unique algorithm for each industry, but the algorithms have the same types of inputs, so it's still a, a cross-industry comparison. So that relevancy factor, so you know, auto industry brands are compared against other auto industry brands, and we see most of those scores overall stayed, again, kind of relatively flat year mm. over year. Um, regardless of how the market has so kind of rapidly changed and, and is ripe for disruption right now and is already being disrupted in some markets. You know, people always point to Tesla and it's like, great, Tesla has a huge presence on the coasts, but there's a vast swath of, of America and American car owners that don't have even access to a Tesla, even if they could afford it. Um, so it's an industry that is both struggling to stay relevant in certain parts of the country while trying to maintain their relationships with other customers that you can't live without a daily vehicle. You know, your whole life revolves around where can I drive? Um, so it's an interesting balance. And those who do well in the index understand that balance. And it's one of the things that when you're doing your CX strategy, much like your brand strategy, you need to be able to make sure that you're always planning for the future and moving towards that, but in a way that doesn't alienate your current customer base. Because it may be great, you're going to be to a wonderful place in five years, but you're not going to have any of your current customers following there. What about 19 and the people that made movement, either up or down? Like what, what caused or what do we think caused those, the movement today, the ones that made those incremental improvements or maybe the folks that dropped a little bit? Well, my, fa my favorite, um, uh, Whole Foods, mm -hmm. big, big jump up 3.6 points, I think it was, uh, which is, you know, in the, in the CX index, the, the two top brands, the ones that moved the most moved five points. So it's a three point move upward is huge. Mm -hmm. And, um, what happened, uh, mostly what happened was Amazon made a lot of changes there. They did you know, lower the prices. That's, that's good on some items. Uh, but um, more importantly, they allowed for you to order 
uh, Whole Foods items on Amazon and then either have them delivered the same day or delivered within two hours, I think it is, with uh, Prime. Or they have uh, um, this um, expedited pickup service now, so you can order them and pick up in the store. They also, in something like 800 stores, they put in these Amazon lockers. You can order anything on Amazon and have it delivered to the locker and then go pick it up. And then a uh, final thing I'll mention is there are specials just for Prime members. So you can go in there and you can get that special. So a whole bunch of digital, physical integration. So not saying yes, we're just digital or, you know, we're just physical, but, you know, making those two things work together appropriately and serving a real need. And that's what drove that up. And it also, by the way, the financial results were really incredible. So if you look at same store sales in Q1, uh, they were up 1% not with 1% without digital, right? Just physical only, boom. If you add in the digital sales, up 6%. So 5% difference based on all that digital integration. So that was, that was a big deal. And that, what I especially love about that is, you know, we were all speculating, well, geez, you know, will Amazon acquiring Whole Foods ruin Whole Foods? Right. And apparently not. So Michelle, you, this is your world. This data is like your children. You open up the box of goodies for 2019. What surprised you? What threw you off? I say, I have to look at it again because that doesn't seem right. That was not what I expected. What was, what was in it that threw you that was a tell about the market? Actually, I think it was doing the analysis Harley already referred to on discovering that answering all questions has become important in almost every one of the industries we cover. You know, that it isn't just customer service in general. It's very specific aspects of customer service. And if you think about answering all of my questions, that's not channel specific. So we see similar when we look at customers who've had a physical in-store experience in retail, for example, or a branch experience in banking. We see the same thing if they used a chat bot, you know, regardless of industry. So this idea of answering all of my questions, uh, customer service more broadly, my first thought is, wow, everything old is new again. Mm. Uh, in fact, when we were talking about um, our forum in, in New York a few weeks ago and that idea of kind of radical innovation in CX to drive growth, it was, well, what's so radical about this is everybody had rotated away from customer service and almost over-rotated into the, you know, their investments in the digital. And here it is, we're human and we're still saying, you know, these core tenets of who we are is the most important part. And when I think about customer service overall and to go back to your brand, you know, no brand promises to deliver a bad experience that will fix. <laughs> right. But that idea of when we look at the range of experiences, right, because we we calculate a CX index score for every respondent. And what that allows us to do is some really granular analysis that actually can, for any given brand, show the distribution of the number of customers that have varying levels of experience. So those five categories from excellent to very poor, how many fall in each of those? When we look at our three core quality metrics, effectiveness, ease, and emotion, how many of them are positive, neutral, or negative? And we start talking about initiatives and prioritization of CX work, we start to look at where the biggest risks lie. And those risks are in those customers that are neutral or okay, right? Mm -hmm. They've had a meh experience. The opportunity, honestly, for when something goes wrong, not that you should make something go wrong, but when something goes wrong, you have the opportunity to recover. If nothing bad happens, 
You have to work really hard to differentiate yourself from everybody else. That neutral category I like to, to talk about, it's a customer literally sitting on the fence. They can either fall on the, you know, on the positive side of that and stay loyal, or they can be pushed off into the negative side. You as the brand have some ability to control which way they tip, but there's also external factors. Um, but it's hard to tip one way or the other by yourself. If somebody's in a neutral category or a, a negative category because they've had a problem, you have the opportunity to solve that. While you're solving it, you have the opportunity to make your customer feel good. We know emotion is the biggest and most important factor in a good overall experience. Right? We've done lots of research um, here at Forrester using our data and some other data we have. You know, we see similar uh, results echoed in you know research done in medical and pain management. Um, you know behavioral economics, you know, this idea of how emotion influences our perceptions and our decision-making process. So it's an opportunity when you think about solving a problem to not only solve a problem, but to make somebody feel good while you're doing that and to, to do so in the right type of emotional level. So making somebody feel appreciated and valued. So for the brands that have kind of over-rotated and stopped paying attention to that problem solving, they're actually not only causing customers to have a negative experience, they're missing the opportunity that a negative experience can actually bring for them. But I guess if I just take two examples that you guys talked to here is that, you know, CX performance getting better or worse is interesting, but there's two pieces that you mentioned. One, there's a whole industry that's now competing on price that customers are saying is not important or not that important. And there's a whole operational strategy about making customer engagement efficient. That's not helpful so there are business strategies and operating norms that CX is saying that doesn't work or doesn't work as well as you might think. There's a hidden outrageous power to what's happening in the CX index confronting the execution of strategies that just don't have a shot in hell to win or norms that really are unhelpful ultimately to keeping the customers happy and, and with you. Well, it's disappointing if it's still hidden because we've been running around talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's counterintuitive, like your example in terms of answering all of the questions while you're on a customer service call. And you know that brands and companies today still probably have some metrics and things. Called average handle time, AHT. Right. That you're compensating those reps on getting folks off the phone quickly. That's well, you know, I mean, we're, we're not unrealistic about this. We realize that forcing people into digital self-service is a great way to save money. People get that. The thing that people don't get is that it's also a great way to lose all your customers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you take a look at the net benefit of, yeah, we save some money, but, oh, geez, why, why aren't those people spending as much as they used to? And, oh, geez, that guy disappeared out of our uh, CRM database. What happened? They don't seem to be buying from us anymore. If they did that thorough of an analysis, they'd realize that it's definitely a false assumption that this is just a great way to go is just force everybody to digital self-service. And that false assumption comes from largely the belief that digital self-service is always going to be successful. So going back to that idea of problems, if you give me the opportunity to self-serve and I can do so successfully, that's great. You've saved money. I've saved time. I'm happier about saving time. If something goes wrong and now you have a bad customer service experience, I'm, I'm already angered that I tried to do all this work myself and it didn't work. And now you're providing a poor solution to my problem. 
it's going to have a much bigger impact than if, for example, the self-service wasn't there at all and I just called customer service directly. Well, you know what's interesting? Ally Bank, for example. So there's a bank. It's, it's a digital bank. They don't have branches. They do well in the customer experience index. Mm-hmm. They have a very robust and, and thoughtful customer experience practice there. And one of the things that they do is they make it very easy to get a hold of a human operator in the event that you need one. Now, they also do a great job of trying to offer you all kinds of options to solve your own problem online. But it's just that. It's an offer. So if it doesn't work, if what they tried to give you digitally didn't work for you, they make it really easy to get a hold of that person. And um, we've talked to them very explicitly about this and say, well, why do you guys do this? Don't you feel like, well, you know, we're just running up the cost and they go, we don't want to lose our customers. This is what we need to do. This is how we win and retain customers. So we just went through the character of 2019 performance and what it means. As you guys look at CX as a practice, as impacting financials, as regrounding the company to be customer obsessed, what's the state of the union of CX as you look at it from 2019 and look forward to 2020? Well, I'm hopeful. Uh, we did see a little bit of upward movement. We saw a higher percentage of scores in the good category. And I've been out talking to, as, as Michelle, a lot of our clients who have sophisticated customer experience practices. And we're seeing them do very thoughtful, well-informed things where they are taking the time to look at the data and understand what the customers really care about. And they are using techniques like design thinking, and they are doing uh, financial modeling to get a good sense of what they're going to get out of it and set expectations and budget appropriately. So uh, I think what we're going to see is that some of the leading companies make progress towards that recently elusive uh, barrier between excellent and good. Yeah, I would agree with what Harley said. And I would add when in talking to clients, we're, I'm also hearing almost a renewed interest in voice of the customer in general. You know, I think there's a shift that so many companies have been collecting a lot of customer data and not knowing what to do with it. And they're starting to become more mature and sophisticated and really understand what to do with that data and how to use it in all the ways that, that Harley mentioned. Um, and I think that's also going to drive a big shift. And, and that acknowledgement that what their customers thinks really does matter, and it may not actually match their operational data all the time. Michelle, Harley, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, guys. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.